Welcome to EdView 360. I think that the idea of sound walls is really easy for people to grasp because we keep talking about the science of reading, but the term science of reading seems a little abstract. So what is it that we can actually do to show evidence of using materials, uh, engaging our students in daily practices that really align with what we know about good instruction? Welcome to EdView 360. You just heard Dr. Mary Dahlgren, National Letters Trainer and President of Tools for Reading. Dr. Dahlgren, a National Letters Trainer and author of Kid Lips, Dr. Antonio Fierro, are our guests today on EdView 360. Here's our host, Pam Austin. This is Pam Austin. Welcome back to the EdView 360 podcast series. We are so excited to have you back with us. I'm conducting today's podcast from my native New Orleans, channeling the heart of Voyager Sopus Learning in Dallas, Texas. Today, we are honored to have with us two renowned literacy experts, authors, EdView 360 podcast all-stars, and national letters trainers, Dr. Mary Dahlgren and Dr. Antonio Fierro. Hello, Dr. Dahlgren and Dr. Fierro. Welcome. We're so happy to have you back today with us at EdView 360. Hi, Pam. It's great to be here with EdView 360. It's a pleasure. Hello, everyone. And hi, Mary. Thank you so much for the invite. It's great to be here. Oh, it's always great to have you guys with us. You both are very accomplished literacy experts. Since you both have been on before, we won't ask you to share how you got involved in education. Instead, tell us what you're up to today. What is the newest education projects you are excited about? Dr. Dahlgren? Please go first, followed by Dr. Fierro. Okay, thanks, Pam. Well, the latest education project, you know, with social media and all the requests that are out there, it's a constant, and there doesn't just seem to be one project. But of course, the focus on sound walls has been so great, and the demand is constantly coming at us with requests for individuals, school districts, even state departments wanting to know more about how do we implement this. And it's one thing to know how to put up a sound wall, and we've talked about that previously, but the next step is what do I do with it now? So that's really what we're working on. Yeah, it is. It is never ending, right, Mary? I mean, there's always something going on. So along those lines, I have been involved with universities and colleges across the state of Mississippi. When we first introduced letters there several years ago, we evolved to eventually working with faculty. And so what's been really interesting and a lot of fun doing is that We now have several university campuses across the state of Mississippi that actually are using the sound walls as part of their instructional design. So we are so excited about that. William Carey, for example, University has a teacher lab, and in that lab, they have set up a sound wall as well. So isn't it exciting to have pre-service candidates who are now involved, understand about these articulatory 
features of phonemes and can talk about them. And so they're using them at the universities. And that's not the only one. Delta State also has sound walls, Mississippi State. So we're hoping now that universities across the country will really step up and, and start using these sound walls as part of their instructional design as pre-service candidates are learning how to how to be teachers. So it, that's exciting, super exciting. Yeah. And I love the sound of that. And pun was intended here. The idea of never ending requests for sound walls and the professional development surrounding it, uh, talking about pre-service teachers understanding the articulation of sound. I'm all excited right here. Yeah, it's me. It's big. It, it's big. Well, Dr. Dahlgren, your podcast, Retire Your Word Wall, How Sound Walls Support the Science of Reading, was our top podcast of 2020. Wow. Ooh, yes. <laughs> it seems as if the idea of retiring word walls and replacing them with sound walls has resonated with educators. Share your thoughts about this change and why this shift is so important for teaching and learning. Yeah, I'm just awed by the fact that that was the top podcast of 2020, and I hope we do it again with this podcast. I think that the idea of sound walls is really easy for people to grasp because we keep talking about the science of reading, but the term science of reading seems a little abstract. So what is it that we can actually do to show evidence of using materials, uh, engaging our students in daily practices that really align with what we know about good instruction? So we've talked about phonemic awareness for a long time. We've been using lots of great phonemic awareness instruction in our classrooms, but we've taken it to another level by adding sound walls. And as Antonio just said, bringing in those articulatory gestures, we're creating a new awareness that hasn't always been there for classroom teachers. And many of our, well, of course, our speech pathologists or tier three teachers have used this kind of information in their very small settings. But shifting to the sound wall in a regular classroom has been something that is relatively easy in the sense that we've had word walls. So now we're understanding why it would make sense to make that shift. And I think that more and more administrators are expecting teachers to implement sound walls because it's become such a buzz in the classrooms and in schools and on social media. And then as Antonio just said, the universities are picking that up. And that's, it's so exciting because I think that unlike some other parts of the science of reading, this doesn't seem to be one of those sticking points where we seem to have arguments around, do we teach phonics or not? How do we begin to teach children to read? We're all in agreement that you have to know about the sounds in order to learn how to read. There's moving from the speech to print, and that's thanks to Louisa Motes, right? Letters and, uh, and her book that she's written to help us gain insight and understanding into uh, the 44 speech sounds. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Dahlgren. Dr. Fierro, was there anything else you'd like to add? Yes, absolutely. Mary was talking about what a great resource these sound walls are for teachers. 
Mary and I are always getting advice from professionals, looking at the research, looking at and speaking to others like speech language pathologists, for example. And one of our colleagues who is a speech language pathologist, we were talking about the sound walls and she was so excited because she said, you know, do you know how much that can help us? And, and to be talking about how these sounds are formed and, and now you have a way to anchor all this information or this phoneme around what's happening in your mouth. Well, I stopped to think about that and, and I started to reflect on my pre-service education and, you know, what did I go through? And, and we think about now these, all these, these uh, classes or these programs at the universities. And, and, you know, I do not remember, Mary, I don't know about you, but I don't remember ever taking any classes that had anything to do with how phonemes are articulated. No. And what are these phonemes all about? And and if we did, I think it may have been maybe a page or two uh, of, a, of a textbook, perhaps, that we were viewing or that was assigned to us. But what a treat to now really dig into all these uh, the properties of, of phonemes, because we didn't, most of us did not get this type of information on this kind of education or teaching while we were pre-service candidates. So this is part that's missing. And, and again, going back to what I had mentioned earlier, what great news to know now that there are professors now who are teaching this and using the sound walls early on. Yeah. And I'll just tag team on that just a little bit. In the previous podcast, I talked about my history and it was 1998, I think, when I went to Greenwood Institute and met Louisa for one of, one of the first times I met her. And when she introduced the the constant and vowel charts. And it was so mind-blowing to me because I'd been teaching for a number of years and I ne- nobody had ever explained this information to me. So now our goal is how do we make it available to everyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, sounds, right, Mary? I mean, sounds are fleeting. They come and go. Yeah. So, uh, and especially, and, you know, well, I'm sure, and we'll touch on it in, in a little bit, especially for English learners, but for all kiddos who are learning these these phonemes and the representations and, and the representation by graphemes, I mean, now we have something to really sink our teeth into. Oh, well, this sound is this, and it's made this way and this way and this way. And it's the discourse also that children share with each other is awesome. Yes. Because they describe the sounds to each other. Right. And so it sounds like shifting to the sound wall, you're creating this common language and it just makes common sense and it's just an easier segue I I like the idea that science of reading is pretty hefty and this is one way to ease into really being effective and supporting your students right so for those of you who may not be familiar with a sound wall and you've got to describe things just a little bit but you know you probably piqued some interest here Please take a moment to share a basic definition with us, uh, Dr. Dahlgren or Dr. Fierro, whichever one of you would like to go. We're so familiar with word walls. So it's a shift, right? It's a shift from this orthographic representation that we're going to get to, obviously. But, you know, when we are talking about all the phonemes of the English language and the, and trying to categorize them by, say, for example, initial sounds. Well, you know, a traditional word wall, you can only organize it using the 26 letters of the alphabet. Well, 
you know, what do you do with that word that begins with a schwa, for example? Or what do you do if you want to talk about maybe digraphs and show that representation between that digraph and that phoneme? Well, you only have 26 letters of the alphabet. So, you know, how do you categorize or what would you say about the word shell, for example, that initial sound shell, you know, where would you put that under what letter if you have a traditional word wall? So you can see that with a sound wall, I can properly represent all 44 phonemes of the English language and without really any kind of error, everything is represented. Kids have that connection between the grapheme and a phoneme. I can talk about that phoneme. I can talk about how it is uh, what how it's made and all the features behind it. And with the um, with the kid lips pictures that we have to go along with them, now I can also demonstrate how that sound is articulated. So, you know, now I have a proper place for every sound of the English language. Mary? Yeah, you've covered it. So the difference in the word wall and the sound wall, we have 44 speech sounds. And as Antonio said, we can categorize them. So one of the hard things for teachers to grasp oftentimes is the fact that because of the organization of the sounds, we have six categories for consonant sounds, and then we have the vowel sounds. So uh, that's that's a little bit of a shift in thinking, okay, so I put my consonants in one place, and then I have the vowels next to that, and what we call the vowel valley. And that's all information, of course, that we teach in letters, in, um, in volume one, unit two. We really dig into what is the arrangement of, uh, of these charts. How do I describe what's happening with um, where my mouth of sound is produced and understanding about the airflow, voicing. And that's exactly how we begin to build sound walls. And, and as Antonio said, um, having the articulatory gestures to be able to describe them for children to be able to say, this is what I'm doing with my tongue. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when I'm saying that sh sound and a common word, she, that is posted on now a sound wall, that kids can begin to notice what's the difference between the sh sound as in she or the ch sound as in chair. Oh my goodness, we're doing the same thing. I see why I might have confusion there with those two sounds. And then adding that print to help further differentiate and, of course, to move into the process of reading. Right, right. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of jump the gun a little bit, but I'm sure we'll go back to it. One of the things that Mary and I were not expecting was the discourse, the oral discourse mm-hmm. that was going to come about because of children understanding how these articulatory properties work, right? And what's, what's another, you know, one thing that, the other thing that we weren't expecting was, you know, kids are curious, period. That's all there's to it. And the more that we teach about the makeup of words from a phoneme, graphing standpoint, for example, that curiosity of that word is just just takes off. 
And so the more kids know about these words from a standpoint of a phonetic structure of how these phonemes are made and then the connection to grapheme, obviously, but the more that they know about how these phonemes are created, the more excited they get and discuss it with others. Now, as this is where I'm going to kind of get ahead of myself a little bit. I know we'll come back. My wife teaches second grade and of course, you know, she's going to have a sound wall, right? <laughs> there's no doubt about it. She's going to have a sound wall, both a consonant and, and, uh, and a vowel valley. She's going to have that. <laughs> so uh, what's really neat is that she has videoed kiddos. And, and by the way, her classroom is a bilingual classroom. So it, it's uh, uh, English learners. And it's really neat to have kids, these second graders, go up to the sound wall and they, they're sharing with each other. No, no, mira, así se hace. No, 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 look, look, this is the way you make that sound. And look, look at the picture. Look at where the tongue is. And, and wow, I just get goosebumps, right, Mary? I mean, when yeah. you have, and, and Mary, you had a similar situation in Alabama. Yeah. So when that curiosity is exposed and, and it's just met and kids just see this as part of their learning the oral language, uh, that, that sharing is amazing, amazing, amazing as they're describing these sounds to each other. Yeah. And, and one of the things that begins to happen is that the teachers learn along with the children too. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the things I tell teachers is, you know, um, put your toe in and, and, and try it and, uh, don't be afraid of it. You don't have to know everything about how we produce these sounds. You'll learn it as you're teaching your children. Um, but the other part of that, that curiosity and children talking about and uh, these sounds and they're becoming more precise in their descriptions and creating that metalinguistic awareness that, that we're really trying to get at. And administrators love the idea that we're being metacognitive about these sounds because once kids start describing and thinking about the sounds on their own, engaging with one another, as Antonio's right. described, right. again, that's where that mental Velcro happens. I have information I can stick new information to. And, and it is like this, this bridge that's been missing from the speech to print that now um, I, it, as we said earlier, there's, it's not just strings of letters, but I can put these sounds in one category. Mm -hmm. And right. now as you introduce the different spellings to me, I have a place to put them. It's not just random strings of letters all over the place. Right. So oh boy, you, you all have answered a ton of questions for me because I, I don't mind you jumping the gun because it's very, very clear for how important it is for um, teachers to be able to articulate uh, to students what's happening in their mouths, right? Any, any gestures they may use. And it's important because then students can then articulate what they're learning and what they understand. So I definitely see the importance there. But you do have to give me a few tips here. What are some practical teacher tips for integrating that sound wall and those activities? Just daily instruction. What are some things? You've given me a hint of some things. How about something really practical that a teacher can take and try within the next hour, within the next day? So, yeah, well, one of the things, if if they happen to have them and more and more classrooms do have them, are using mirrors, although I know that that's a very difficult thing with our masks on, but doing things like 
having children after you've introduced the sounds, what are our three nasal sounds? They're the mm as in mouse, the n as in nest, and the ng as in ring. And what do you know about those sounds? Oh, if I hold my nose, I can't make them. Well, kids love that. Mm -hmm. And then I have a wonderful observation that occurred with the teacher who said to her children, first grade classroom, about this time last year when I was actually in classrooms, the teacher said, what happens when a vowel comes before those nasals? And all the children said, it makes them cry. So the A goes, eh. I thought, oh my gosh. So when I read a word like am, it doesn't sound like ah, apple. It goes eh, because there's an mm coming. And the idea that these teachers are priming those children to think about that and notice so they can shift what a word sounds like if I'm reading am and I say ah, mm, and it doesn't quite sound right. But then I know, oh, yeah, I can go am because it makes it cry. It goes am. So drawing their attention to, after I've introduced the sounds, what are the different ways to describe those sounds? And then doing fun comparing activities. How are they alike? How are they different? Giving examples and non-examples. Do you hear the sound in a word? Yes or no? And then describe that sound that you're hearing. So we're encouraging teachers to do um, a variety of things to engage with that sound wall. but. Five to seven minutes a day. It's not an all-day type of thing. Um, it's just a few minutes that we'd like to see teachers adding on some of these engagement pieces as their warm-up. Lots of time is spent around calendar time. Well, let's let's move some of that around to the sound wall time and get our students to think about Things like why, and this is an Oklahoma thing, Antonio's in Texas, but he has a different accent. But what about the eh and the eh sound, right? The number 10 and a piece of 10. We don't differentiate those very much. So what happens with your mouth? Looking at your jaw, let's look at what happens in the opening of the mouth. So we're examining things a little bit more closely when we're doing those engagement activities with the sound wall. Yeah. Isn't it amazing what you can bring to their attention? I had not heard, Mary, about the fine vowels. <laughs> Isn't that fabulous? <laughs> I love it. I absolutely but, love it but myself. It's true. And and it helps the kids also kind of explain you know, why this sound might be a little bit different, but then also, especially as for teachers, what a resource to know, oh, because of co-articulation, how is this other sound going to be affected? How is this vowel going to be affected by by that nasal, for example? So, I, you know, as, as Mary said, having some fun with these, with these sound walls, because it can be incorporated, right, Mary, mm -hmm. throughout the entire day. Right. Anything that you can think of, because, you know, Again, words have that story to tell. And at the very fundamental level, it's the story has to do with what are those phonemes all about? So having a mirror, absolutely. Uh, you know, and the other thing that I just want to stress this real quick is the importance of being just good articulatory models, mm -hmm. you know, being able to explain those sounds and articulate them the best you can uh, because kids are going to imitate. You're going to be the model and just do the best you can on that. But have some fun with it. Everything that Mary said is right on. Yep. Yes. So the idea of being the model, that's very, very important. And 
just a little while ago, Dr. Dahlgren mentioned the fact that, you know, in the times we're living in right now, uh, maybe there's some virtual instruction going on. Teachers are teaching remotely. What are some tips you have for those teachers who are very interested in sound walls? They're intrigued, but they're wondering, how can I make this happen in a remote teaching situation? What tips might you have for them? Yeah, well, that is the million dollar question. How do we talk about this when I'm wearing a mask or when I'm remote? I remind teachers that this is an I do and a we do type of learning. And so I tell teachers all the time, get really close to the camera when you're producing the sound and let them see what your mouth is doing and then stop and describe it as you're, you're pulling back and then have your kids get really close to the camera. And, you know, young children, especially the majority of the kids that we're working with around sound walls, they don't mind doing that. And it's fun. And it is really drawing their attention in. We have our pictures that we use of the children's mouth that we call kid lips. And that's the other piece is being able to show that picture helps the students to also see that if they're having a hard time making that connection. Mm-hmm. You know, so Mary and Pam, what my wife is actually doing, because now she's back at the in the classroom, uh, but she still has kiddos at home, is that, so she did use mirrors because they're at home. They're socially distanced there in the classroom as well. But what she did was that she also used cell phones. I mean, it's kind of the sign of the times now, right? Oh, that yeah. Who doesn't have a cell phone? What, what second grader doesn't have a cell phone, right? <laughs> or, or an iPad. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And she had them record themselves as they were articulating sounds. And then they went back and watched them. And she also had them share those with their parents as well. And, you know, she was hesitant at first. She thought they'd be joking around or playing around with them. And, you know, they really did. They really were viewing themselves and correcting themselves and talking about it. So that was a lot of fun. And as Mary mentioned, yeah, getting really close to the camera and showing all those properties as you're talking about them, as you are explaining it to them, yeah, or as you're showing it to them. So, yeah, just, oh, Seesaw. My wife used Seesaw as well. And not familiar with that platform, but I, I believe their kids are able to record themselves and tape themselves as well. And then she'd have them practice at home and then they would send her those recordings. I love that idea of that recording too, Antonio. And yeah. I had heard that, but I think that, again, kids, they're being analytical and it's something that they can do successfully. They're building that bridge. And, mm-hmm. you know, I go back to what, are, you know, why are we doing this? The science of reading, it's because I'm building those pathways in my brain, right? And so I'm really developing that phonological pathway in that area of my brain. And then it's that much easier to map that speech to the print when I'm aware of the sound. And then what is the grapheme that's going to represent that sound? So I've created that, again, mental Velcro because I've talked about it and I've thought about it and I've I've recorded it and I can see it. It becomes Mm -hmm. tangible for me. Yep, yep. That that mental Velcro, that's a good one. Mary, absolutely. Now I have something to, yeah. somehow to, to you can make that stick, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I'm adding that to my lexicon. I've heard mental <laughs> Velcro a couple of times and it's stuck right there. Uh, a couple of the things that are stuck in my head is the fact that technology has so many resources that helps to support. So we don't say, hey, this is impossible. I can't do this. Yeah, um, yeah. 
even Voyager Soapers Learning, we have a few of our curricula. Passport has those videos where we can actually see a frontal view of a person producing the sound and within Language Live as well yeah. from right. the Motes herself. Yeah. Yes. So we've got yeah. those tools there. So it was just wonderful that there are multiple ways to make it happen, even in a teaching yeah. in a remote environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to shift a little bit. Dr. Fierro, you ready for this question? Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. All righty. So you had a podcast with us solo as well. It was called Educator Accountability, Preparing for the Tough Challenges Faced by English Language Learners. And it was also one of our most popular podcasts of 2020. I think we have some good things coming out of 2020. That's nice to be able to say. <laughs> Why do you think sound walls are especially important for your English learners? Mm-hmm. And what are some of the struggles they might face that are different from students who are native English learners? Yeah, well, Pam, let me tell you about my struggle. First of all, you mentioned that uh, Mary's podcast was the top podcast for 2020. Are you sure it wasn't mine? (laughs) (laughs) You can't take it. I'm going to say no comment right now. (laughs) Yeah, crickets, crickets, I get it. Well, (laughs) if I was going to lose this top spot, definitely it has to be to my dear friend and colleague, Mary Dogman. So let me tell you, for English learners, Oh my goodness, it's such an incredible resource. I talk about, and most of my colleagues who work with English learners have done the research and talk about the comparisons between English and Spanish. I just want to mention that, you know, I'm there as well. And the reason that we make so many comparisons to Spanish is because most of our English learners, about 80% of our English learners, actually have a Spanish speaking background. So that's why. Most of the research and comparisons are always made to Spanish because of the number of Spanish speakers who are in our classrooms. So based on that, I'll have to mention just real quick that, you know, when we're talking about phonemes and uh, we're talking about 44 phonemes in the English language, but Spanish only has about 22, 23, maybe 21, depending on the linguist who you study. So we're missing about half, right? I mean, we only have about half. So how important is it for kids to be explained the properties of these phonemes that perhaps uh, do not exist in Spanish? You know, so for example, does not exist in Spanish. So how is that, how is that articulated? And why is that confused with the that does exist? So what a wonderful opportunity to be talking about that, to be explaining how these phonemes are articulated. You know, one of the findings from the National Literacy Panel, the report of the National Literacy Panel on Language Minority Children and Youth. There you go. Mm. It's a mouthful. Yeah. When that was published, they wrote that the instruction that is provided to our native speaker of English that has to do with phonetics and phonics and phonological awareness and vocabulary and text comprehension. All those have clear benefits for English learners. However, the research also suggests that adjustments to these approaches are needed to have maximum benefit for English learners. So what does that mean? That means that we have to have comprehensible input and and we need to make these connections quite easy and, and they have to be understood by our English learners. So 
when I talk about how sounds are made, I'm doing a self-talk, right? I'm describing that my tongue is between my teeth, all right? Uh, I'm describing perhaps that my vocal cords are vibrating. So I am, not only am I describing all these phonemes in such detail, I'm also helping uh, that receptive language of that English learner. So I'm doing like double duty here. I'm explaining these phonemes, but I'm also explaining them in a way that that is comprehensible, uh, that they, they they understand that. So I am facilitating that receptive language. And I could even be talking about it as as the students are doing. I can be describing the sound as they are articulating it. So it gives us the foundation. It gives us the groundwork. This is how this sound works. And by the way, you know what? You might have a sound similar in your native language. So let's talk about it. But if you don't, here you go, right? And so Mary was talking about all that brain work that's going on. Well, you know, I might have that letter, that grapheme in my native language. But you know what? In English, it's not quite the same, all right? So now I have to be taught explicitly how to do that. And when teachers understand these features and can explain them and repeat them, how effective is that for English learners? Very, Very much so. Antonio, would you use the example with the letter E in Spanish? Because <laughs> I think it's just, it's so fascinating. And I experienced that with some third graders who were having such a hard time with the short I, I sound. Yeah. You know, thank you, Mary. I also say that English learners do double the cognitive work because not only are we having to learn content but we're going to have we're also learning these features of our language and being able to process and you know i'm told oh well you know what that sound is just going to transfer over from their native language well it might transfer over but it doesn't exactly transfer to the same grapheme right so i have that long e sound in spanish for example e e right as in eagle I have that sound. I do. But in Spanish, that E sound is represented by the letter I. Oh, my gosh. Now, I have that I in English, right? But in English, it's an I sound. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I know it is an E, and you're telling me it's an I? Yep, that's the way it works. So, that is how the brain works. And, and I mean, that's where we are as English learners. Uh, and how necessary is, is that for the teacher to understand the dilemma and uh, explain to the child what is going on and have lots of opportunity for practice. So yikes, can you believe that? And, and it's tough. I have the short O sound, right? As in, ah, octopus, octopus. But in Spanish, it's represented by the letter A. Uh, Wow. Yeah. It's tough. However, yeah. however, oh, wow. now that I can explain all those features, though, and I can explain what is going on, now I, I know, okay, I need to do it again. I need to practice. I, they need to practice. They need to hear it again. We're going to repeat it. So the more we know about the language, then the better off we are, obviously. Oh my goodness, just the idea of the comprehensible input and how it, it, it builds that receptive language. Yes. So you're doing two things at once and it's absolutely necessary. 
And, uh, you know, Dr. Fierro, I was I was going to ask for some tips and some examples, but that example of just the loan E and what it represents and the challenges and that example of the, the short O, ah, uh, and yeah. the challenges that are there, you ran right into me asking for tips as well. And I just want to recap some of those tips. And if you need to add a little bit more, please do so. You mm-hmm. spoke of the features of what's happening in the mouth. And we do that, but it's really, really important for our English learners. You spoke of self-talk and actually talking through what's happening, describing what's happening, and then repetition. And I'm one for repetition, repetition, repetition. Did I miss anything? Would you add any more tips for teachers? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I want kids to be describing what they are learning, especially our English learners, kids with limited vocabulary. I need that extended discourse. So I need that. I I need to make sure that I have uh, mirrors. I have the the kid lips cards, for example, or, you know, the the pictures of of how these sounds are articulated. So when we explain these features, like I said, the the vibration, the vibration of our vocal cords, the tongue between our teeth, oh, air going through our nose, those features are so detailed, but yet they're so controlled and it's good receptive language. And that self-talk really just gets to the nitty-gritty, describes how the sound is done, and it becomes quite comprehensible for the English learner. Yeah, and I'll jump in on that just a little bit, too, and talking about, Antonio brought this up, that as teachers, oftentimes we have our EL students in our classroom, but we don't know anything about their language. So the more we know about our language and we can explain it in a specific way, even if I don't speak the language that my student is coming in speaking, I can give them the information that they need to to develop that awareness of our language. And I think that that often doesn't happen. We, we go right into with our ELs for the vocabulary and building the background knowledge, which makes perfect sense. We need to do that too. But uh, this beginning process of learning how to decode and how does that system work is is so important. And the sound wall gives me that tool, again, to have the avenues to build those connections for our students. Right. And, and we're working on that phoneme isolation. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, especially for the child who is coming from a Spanish-speaking background, Spanish manipulates syllables. So as we are developing that phoneme and that phoneme awareness, that phoneme isolation, especially like in different positions of the, uh, in the word, we're developing a skill that children may not have in their native tongue. So although we do go to a phoneme level in Spanish initially, we spend most of our time manipulating syllables. So we do, we have a lot of syllable blending and segmenting and not near enough phoneme isolation or phoneme awareness. So this really helps create that sophisticated level of phonemic awareness that we need, especially for English. Lay that foundation to add That's more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, believe yeah. it or not, we are nearing the end of the podcast. What are some additional tips? I know you have a ton that you both have for working with intervention students. How can sound walls help increase their reading skills during small group instruction? Well, I think we've hit on it, the repetition, right? I need more practice and opportunities to verbalize, to see, to think about 
Um, and the beauty of the intervention, smaller group, and getting that individualized attention as teachers, being able to notice when something's not quite right for children and helping them to be able to adjust and creating that awareness for them. We have some little folders like file folders that a lot of intervention teachers are using because um, they're in a more individualized situation and they can use that resource to help point to what's the sound, what's the picture look like, how do I describe that. Those are all little aids that are really effective in that small group practice. Right. Yeah, I have to agree with Mary. It has to do with really being very explicit, obviously, but we have that and that would work for all kids. So kiddos who are receiving intervention would have additional review, additional practice and and more time to really be processing this information. Thank you. Thank you both for that add value there. We've talked about so much. I have to go back and listen to this podcast again. This is wonderful. <laughs> That's great. I have to go back and, and check to see whether Mary's podcast was the most popular. <laughs> let that one go. Yeah, let it go. Let it go, I know. <laughs> so I'm going to say, finally, if you both could wave a magic wand and change anything in the world of education, what would you change and why? Well, I think Antonio's already brought it up and we're seeing a little bit of that magic happen in the classrooms in our universities. And I think that that is such a critical piece of where this introduction needs to occur so that all teachers have access to this prior to coming into schools. Those teachers who are in service, of course, having quality PD. And that's where letters comes in, right? And having good resources. We've talked about our kid lips, but there's also, as you said, Language Live is is a great resource and um, the passports to help bring around this awareness of the phonetics of our language. Right. Right. Amen, sister. I agree with you. (laughs) You know, if, if I could, I'd have every classroom especially K3. And you know what? Now for our kiddos who are older and English learners, these sound walls are very, very effective. And we're doing that in a couple of districts that I've been working with uh, of how these sound walls can be beneficial for older English learners as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing what those results are. But if I had that magic wand, I'd have every early childhood classroom from K to third grade with sound walls in their rooms and all right, instead of word walls. But that's twofold, though. I can have a sound wall in every classroom. But the key here is a knowledgeable teacher who knows about the sound walls and is properly trained. So that professional development goes hand in hand with that. And I have to agree with Mary. Thank you, Mary, for saying that, you know, what's going on with educator prep programs. We just need to continue working on improving the instruction that is being received by our pre-service candidates. Because that's what I can have a sound wall in every room, but if I don't know anything about it or don't know how it works, then it's all for naught. So uh, the most important thing, of course, is a knowledgeable teacher. Well, I have to tell you, I am excited about the input and the value you've added and what you've shared for educators who are seeking more knowledge about, hey, the sound wall. What's, what it's is that? Well. Tell me about it. How can I use it? And yes, yeah. that goes hand in hand with teachers who are prepared and ready and know what to do with that sound wall. Pam, thanks so much for having us. And, and thanks for letting me bring Antonio along. <laughs> <laughs>
A pleasure. A pleasure to have you both. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Dahlgren and Dr. Fierro. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Please tell our listeners how they can learn more about you, how they can follow you on social media. Ah, well, you can follow us on Tools for Reading, T-O-O-L-S, number four, reading.com. We have Facebook, we have Twitter, and uh, we're always trying to keep up with all those posts. And we have a website, too, with the same name, toolsforreading.com. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you. This is Pam Austin, bringing the best thought leaders in education directly to you. This has been an EdView 360 podcast produced by Voyager Sopris Learning. For additional thought-provoking discussions, sign up for our blog, webinar, and podcast series at voyagersopris.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts and to help other people like you find our show. Thank you.